Hi there, welcome to an episode of Fair Roundup. I'm your host today, Carl Mungazi. I'm joined by H. Hey, everybody. Awesome. And our guest today is Dana Yudelovich. Hello. Cool. So, Dana, would you mind to tell us a bit about, bit about yourself and what you do? Yes. So, I'm a senior front end developer and I've been a front end developer for the past 10 years. I'm actually originally from Israel. Right now, I live in Las Vegas, but I've worked in many Israeli startups, big and small. And one of the more notable is Fiverr. And there I actually helped uh, introduce React into their code base, which they now use all over, which is awesome. And I'm part of an Israeli women in tech group called Ba'ot, and I give talks there and mentor other women. And also, I mentor students at Punch Code, which is a nonprofit tech school. Love that. And I have a technical blog on Medium. Yeah, just love React, love web development. Been doing that for so long, and I uh, hope to be doing that for even longer. Awesome. Leveling up is important. I spend at least an hour every day learning ways I can improve my business or take a break and listen to a good book. If you're looking to level up, I recommend you start out with the 12-week year as a system to plan out where you want to end up and how to get the results you want. You can get it free by going to audibletrial.com slash code. That's audibletrial.com slash code. So Dana, how did you get into React in particular? So I got into React when I was at Fiverr. We were very much looking for a way to reuse code and actually create components. We were very much using like vanilla JS and jQuery back at that point. And even I think it was handlebars and kind of, you know, very old school templating. And we were really looking for a way to kick it up a notch. And it was when React really started, you know, being more prominent, um, I think it just kind of came out. And we were definitely at Fiverr wanted to be on top of the, you know, top-notch technology and be at the front. So we definitely started looking into React and we started, you know, introducing it to a few projects. And I slowly introduced it to the other team members and we loved it. We started migrating our code base slowly to React. And then we actually created a component library, which is what I'm curious today to talk about and which presented a lot of challenges in itself as to how to build it correctly. And, you know, we were also planning to release it open source, which is, which also adds another dimension of uh, challenges. Yeah. And we very much like React. And then after I left Fiverr, I got into more startups that use React and I wanted to stay with React because I very much liked the way that they construct the whole architecture. And I really enjoyed the the concept of hooks that that was being added. And yeah, so I'm very much working with React for a long time now. And I am also in in, uh, Fiverr, we use Redux to manage the state and now more of a Mobix kind of gal, but (laughs) both are good. (laughs) So yeah. So you said that you kind of started designing your own component library. I'm really curious how you would, how you go about that or how you guys approached it because I've used component libraries and... And, you know, they're super helpful, really useful, but I can't imagine being the people like making the decisions of how to build it. And I'm really curious of how you you guys approached it. Yeah. So the first thing I think you start thinking about when you're thinking about a component library is like, why not use an existing one, right? Like Material UI or AntDesign or something like that. Like why reinvent the wheel, right? So there are, of course, a lot of advantages to using those libraries, but there are also disadvantages. First, 
being that they enforce their own APIs and their own types and their own, you know, logic and theming, right? And can it can be a bit tricky to customize. From my own experience with Material UI, I love Material UI, first of all, I love it. But it can be like a learning curve to, you know, handle their theming and all of that. And I also think it does limit the, you know, the design aspect because as much as you customize it, it's going to still be Material UI. And it would constrict your designers from, you know, making super custom stuff. You are still limited to that library. And it does also sometimes send you down the rabbit hole of understanding exactly which type each component is looking for. So it's like someone else defined that for you. And it's not something that you customize to your need. And I think there are a lot of advantages, of course, like they, they do handle all of the edge cases, all of the platforms, devices, accessibility, things that you might not even be aware of that since it is, you know, it's a community that's working on, on a, you know, such a big project and they had so much time to think of all those scenarios, they already solved that for you. So there are a lot of advantages for that. But I think especially what I saw from working with both at companies that built their own libraries like Fiverr and I worked in another startup this, that based on Material UI and build components over that, I feel like you might start up by saying, yeah, I want to get set up quickly. Let's just use an existing library. And, and, you know, in the future, we might create our own components and slowly migrate, but you end up committing to it for the long run because once you build, you know, your, your foundation with those libraries, it's very hard to wean off of it. It's like, it becomes a whole project just to, you know, disconnect from that, from, from that base. At, at the startup I worked at, Stream Elements, we actually, we started using a material UI, you know, because it's a young startup. We wanted to set up, to get up uh, and running quickly. But we got to a point where we were very much dependent on Material UI. And when we wanted to customize things further, we then started to understand that we need to slowly get off of Material UI and start creating our own components. And it became like this whole thing where you need to dedicate time to that. So it may be, you know, faster at the beginning, but later it might create some issues. So it's just something to be aware of. And I think when you have a component library that's internal, first of all, you're building it of course, for the end users, right? It needs to be good UI, but you're also building it for your other developers on your team to use, which is an important point to keep in mind. So it needs to be very, you know, clear, usable and very much to your needs. I think something that people often forget is that we're also building that component library for the designers because they would create those components and they would comprise their designs from those components, right? So they would use that component library across the site. So we would want to build that in a way that incorporates the designers into the process. So I do think having an inner component library is it does provide improved speed of development. So people might think it might slow down development to start making, you know, components that are reusable instead of just going at it and doing quick and dirty work. But in the long run, when you have a toolkit of components that you can reuse, it becomes so fast to just push out, you know, grids and layouts just very quickly because you just, you know, the components that you have, you have a toolkit, you just use it. Someone built it for you, even if it was you. (laughs) 
And yeah, it makes things very fast. And I think another advantage is it's an advantage and a disadvantage where you can very much easily deploy uh, changes app-wide, right? Because if you're reusing the same components and you can make that change once in that component library, it just flows over to your app. But like the only thing is that it also means app-wide bugs. Cause if you <laughs> if you make a mistake in that component, like yeah, all of your <laughs> all your app is gonna suffer from that because reusability. And of course we have the issue. It's not an issue, it's it's like something that we need to be aware of, which is UI consistency. We want the components to look the same. And if we start building, you know, custom cases for each page and start changing it for each scenario and each layout, it's going to be inconsistent. So once we have that library, which is consistent on its own and consistent across the library, then everything looks better. And I think from my experience, for newcomers that are joining your team, it's much easier to start using a library. Like you can just go over, go over it, tell them, look, we have a button, we have an input, we have our own little component library you can use. And usually it's like, oh, that's so nice. That makes stuff so much easier and faster. So of course, there are also issues. I think it may feel like, like, you know, it could slow down development. But I think when you develop and you start thinking about breaking it down into components and really taking the time to make those components reusable, it can feel like it's slowing you down. But I think, like, as I said, overall, it would be faster. And I think another issue is like maintaining it without creating breaking changes. Because, you know, you're using the, you would use this library probably across the app, across different repos cross packages and you know you have that issue of if you're making a change you need to make sure you're not breaking any usage you're backwards compatible and we have the issue of course of testing it and managing the versions which is a headache and i think it also could feel like you're being limited to the components that you've built like you might say oh the designer made it this way but our component acts that way so i'll just do that way which could be a good thing, could be a bad thing. It depends on the culture, you know, and, and you know, the end goal, but it could be an issue. And of course, the issue of, you know, what I talked about with the existing libraries, which they handle mobile web and accessibility and all of that, it would be very easy to miss those things because, you know, you're, you're not spending as much time on each component thinking of all the possible scenarios for that. Yeah, I mean, what you said actually is something I've experienced in my kind of career so far. In each place I've worked, I've never actually used, let's say, and design or UI. We've always built our own components and it's been faster because we know the code. Yeah. So if there's a uh, an issue with maybe how it's behaving in a particular place, we know how to go to our source code and look at it. But one thing I've always struggled with is knowing or deciding, okay, I can build my own dropdown or I can import a dropdown from somewhere else and modify it. But maybe the button is ours, the input is ours, you know, so how do you think about that? Do you do you go for an approach where every component is built in-house or you might have, let's say, 80% in-house and 20% are like one or two libraries you've taken off the shelf because they have more features that, that, that you want to use? Yeah, so I'm very much in general against reinventing the wheel. So as I said, we want to move fast. I do think that for more complex components like date pickers and, you know, drop down and stuff like that, it's totally fine to use important 
imported packages, existing packages that, you know, have been tested and, you know, you can customize it. You can, you know, sit with your designer, show them the package, see if they, you know, like the look and feel. I usually send a designer, hey, you know, we there's this kind of date picker. What do you think about that? And it can shorten, you know, development time for creating such a custom component. But, you know, the more atomic components definitely can be, you know, as you said, most of it can be stuff that you do on your own. So, yeah, I very much experienced that also in my day to day. We are a lot of time when there's more specific components that have a very familiar UI for the users. I sometimes would rather import an existing component and use that. And maybe in the future, you know, customize it. But I think it's totally fine to use an importing component for sure. And and with that, how do you find the maintenance burden? Because that's one thing I find as well is once you've built it, you have to keep it going. So like right now, we are currently at the now work, we're building a uh, kind of a migration and part of that we've built new components in React, right? So we started off with all oh, cool buttons, inputs, text builds, but then we've now got so many features coming across the line. Like, okay, cool. This button is not quite the same as it was when we first started. So how do you kind of manage the time to actually say, okay, let's say in a sprint, you've got to work on a new feature. We're going to dedicate this time in this sprint to maybe maintain the components. Otherwise, after a while, they begin to get, get out of hand. Yeah. So I think how I usually work and how I find it, you know, the best kind of process of building the actual library out is when, you know, you have a sprint, you have features that you're working on. And when I get to the technical design of a feature, I try to identify those components that as I build them, I could say those could be reusable across the platform. So other people would use this button that we they could use this, I don't know, select box. So I try to, you know, identify those ahead of time and dedicate a bit more time to just build them out inside the component library and not just, you know, in that isolated case. And I think it also makes sense to, as you, you know, work on your feature, to identify existing components that you would want to use that someone else built and, you know, extract those into the component library. Because sometimes, you know, you're, you're working on a feature and then you're saying, hmm, this component actually somebody already created that on that page. So maybe I should just extract that to a reusable, reusable component and use that instead of just duplicating code, which is, you know, not the best practice. So when, when you identify those code reuse and code duplication, it's a sign that, you know, you could reuse that as an abstracted component, as a reusable component. And I think that the main issue of maintaining that component library, I think the main issue is when it, you create a package, an NPM package, and then things start getting rough because you, when you test it, you need to put out test versions and you need to work with NPM links. Sometimes it depends on how you work. If you work with uh, Yarn workspaces or, you know, there are several tools to manage it. But if you're working it with an external package, it can be an issue to maintain and you need to, you know, keep the, the versions across all of your repos, you know, aligned, and which is an issue. There are solutions for that. There's Greenkeeper, which is, I think, now called SNCC. And it, it's a tool that just opens PRs for you once a package you're using is updated to a new version. And it very much helps you maintain those versions across repos. But I think how I look at it is that if I don't have to extract it to a package right away, I would rather have it, you know, built in as a mono repo or inside of my, you know, platform code and my apps code. And when it gets more stable and, you know, 
I'm less of in a stage of constantly changing the components and customizing them. And, and I see that I have like a nice library of things. Then I would extract it to an external package to avoid all of those pitfalls that you have using an external package. So in my opinion, I would build it out as I'm developing features. So I would create that library as I'm developing. And then when I feel comfortable, I would extract it to a package. And it really depends on, you know, the way your your app architecture is built. Because if you're working in a monorepo, you do have those tools, like I mentioned, like Yarn Workspaces or Lerna or NX to manage multiple packages within one repo. But if you're working across multiple repos, then of course you need a package and you can't get around that. But I think for as long as you can, I would flesh out the component library, not in a package, and then move it when it's more stable. That's that's sometimes you can't do that, but when you can, I recommend it because it's very hard. And I think back at Fiverr, we were very much at the notion that our component library would be, you know, we would want to release it open source. So we have to have it in a package and, you know, it's a component library. So it's got to be in a package from the get go. And we got to a point where we, you know, we discussed each component so much and we debated it so much because we had that notion that, oh, it's going to be open source at some point. I don't think it, it ever got to that point, but <laughs> that we spent so much time, you know, debating like, you know, the style guide of the, com- like how the props would look like and how, you know, the interface would look like and it slowed down development a lot. So I would recommend not being locked like in some notion, oh, we're going to release it as open source in the future or something like that. Like just work what you need right now with a vision for the future, but don't let that, you know, hold you back and slow down development. Like you can always make changes. You can always extract it to a package. So I think that's a balanced approach to go about it. So Dana, how did you decide which pieces to build for the pack or the component library? Like how did you prioritize, you know, buttons versus dropdowns versus inputs versus tables, et cetera, et cetera? Was it just whatever feature you were working on at the time that you needed? components for or was it more you know kind of further thinking well we we're definitely going to need x y and z so we should build those regardless of if we need them right this second or not yeah that's a really good question so i've worked in places where you know both approaches existed like at fiverr we we were we set out to build the component library detached of the you know decoupled from the development process itself we we had people spending their 20% time just building out this component library and you know not necessarily if if we're using that component right now or not but you know just fleshing that out building more and more components as we go which is i think it's fine but i think if you're if you're more of a startup and you want to move fast i would not recommend doing it that way since it would require people to you know, spend a lot of time on that. And it does encourage, you know, endless debate, the components and, you know, yeah, we were going to, we're going to use it like that. No, we're going to use it like that. We're going to need this customizable option. No, we're going to, in Hebrew, we call it it's like building with the, it's from the construction world. It's like building with the air, with the central air conditioner in mind, like making room for things in advance that you may not necessarily need, but you're so caught up in like, yeah, we might need this, we might need that, we might need this, that you're, you know, you're over-engineering it, kind of over-planning it. So in my approach,
approach from like not as Fiverr did it. What I do right now is like I build it, as I said, as I develop and I build it according to my current needs. So I less, I spend less time thinking, yeah, this component might be used this way and we might have a scenario where we would want it that way. I prefer to just build it for my current needs, for my current team's needs. And, you know, if there is a scenario that comes up that we would need to expand upon it, that's fine. We can add, you know, more to the, to the component props and interface. And, you know, it's, it's, of course, easier to do when you're a small startup and you're not a bigger startup. But yeah, if you're a bigger startup, I would like you probably have the resources to also, you know, have people working on that component library. <laughs> if you have that, have fun. But if you're a small startup, you're trying to move fast, which is most of the startups I work for, then I really think building it out and fleshing it out according to your needs while developing, it makes it like you don't waste time on unnecessarily over planning, over engineering. You actually get to to a component that you use and you actually allow that flexibility of changing the interface if it doesn't work for you anymore or expanding on the interface. And I think the act like making the decision of which components to to put there, that's also something that, you know, how do you decide that? Like which component should be in a component library and is reusable and which component is too specific to be there. So from what I think, there's this atomic design methodology, if you're familiar with it, it actually breaks down components into several kind of levels. You have atoms, molecules, organisms, and then larger and larger pieces. And it kind of is a metaphor for, you know, how small components slowly comprise bigger and bigger components that use those components, you know. And I think those atoms, which is which are like the smallest building blocks, like a button, an input, it's just those things are very much, you know, the basics of reusable, of a reusable component library. And I also think that also molecules in, in the in that methodology, you know, terminology, it's basically small components the, that use several atoms. So let's say you have like a, a product card, right? Like if it's an e-commerce website or something, you have like a, a card that has like a, a product image and a title and stuff like that and a button and a call to action like buy now. And so it's comprised of small atoms, right? It's comprised of an, of an image and a button and a description and a title. So those could be reusable components of their own, but you also have that, you know, product card, which is also a reusable component in your ecosystem, right? In an e-commerce site, it's very much a reusable component, a product, you know, card. So I would also put that into the component library. It, it can be debated. At Fiverr, we, we very much try to keep it like very atomic, like the smallest component. I think it was more of that thinking that we might want to release it as open source. So we want to keep it like as a very much a UI library and not specific, you know, to our needs. But I think having those components also reusable according to your app's ecosystem and your needs is better. Like I, I constantly use those molecules like user cards and app product cards across the website. And I think that should also be reusable in your component library. I mean, you, you eventually you decide what building blocks look for you, right? For your app. It could be different across apps. It depends on like your world, your context. So if, if 
it feels like a building block that you're going to reuse a lot and you see that you're actually reusing it. If, if you're actually seeing that you need to copy paste stuff, <laughs> obviously that, that, that's a good sign that it should be like extracted and be generic enough to be reused. And I also think things like even, you know, colors and typography and breakpoints and, you know, stuff like that can also be extracted, not as components, but it can be you know, put on that, you know, package as things you can use because you have, you know, typography sizes and, you know, all those letter spacing stuff that font weights and stuff that designers very much love. And you want to reuse that across the website. So that could also sit there and, you know, cons for, for the colors definitely could be imported from that component library. Yeah. So when it comes to the interface of the component, how strict are you? And I asked because when Twitter did UI redesign, they wrote a blog about how they saw that the buttons on the old UI were different in, in the application. And it's because the button component was too, was too flexible and had so many custom props. So in the new one, they, they're basically more strict, even though it may, in some, in some cases, make it less flexible. So... How, how do you think about making a component uh, API either strict or flexible? Because obviously each approach is its is, is own merits and, and, and pros and cons. Yeah, totally. You know, it does depend on the kind of the design approach, I think, because I've worked at, at a startup that they were very strict. They were like, look, designer, you built it this way and you need to think ahead of that, that this component is going to be reused and we're not going to let you be flexible with that design. We're not going to let you customize, you know, the, the margin and, you know, the colors and stuff like that. The way you built it, this is how we're going to use it. And we're not even going to allow extending the styles or passing in class names because of that, the conceptual restriction that you want it to look exactly the same across the app. So I get that. I think especially with with the larger organizations like Twitter or like Fiverr, it makes more sense. But I think in smaller startups, when you're building out the product and you need to kind of iterate frequently and you might change the design, you might change things, it's very dynamic. So I think like if I would restrict myself and not allow those customizations, I think it would make development harder in the long run. I want to make it customizable and I want to make it, you know, to allow myself to extend that component and according to the designer's needs. And I do think like in my approach, the designer should be very much involved in building this component library out. And I think once you sit with the designer and you align with them on that concept of a component library that, you know, some designers already do that. They they work kind of in a, you know, when they flesh out the, their designs, like the designer I'm currently working with, he always, he creates a design and like in Figma and under that, he just creates those unique components that he made with all their different states, like how it looks like disabled and empty and active and hover. So it, it, he's very much with that component library already in mind. But if they're not thinking that way, they might be more inclined to, you know, create something new for each page that they built and not reuse existing components. So I would first, like, if you're starting out building that component library, I would very much from the start sit with the designer and make sure they understand what you're doing and make sure that they're on board and 
ask them to when the design when they create designs keep that in mind that they're creating components that you would be reusing and encourage them to use those in the design like every new page they make okay well, we're going to have a component library you're going to be able to look at that and choose from those components and most designers that i know would be very much aligned on that notion like a lot again already work in that you know concept but i think it's very much very important to align on that and sometimes it can create frustrations because you know they created a component a certain way and then they designed a different page and they changed it a little bit they kind of changed the, the component <laughs> a little bit and then you go to them look we build it a certain way where you originally designed it and now you're changing it. You can't change it. And I think that that point of being flexible versus rigid, like you could do, no, you can't change it because we already built it that way and that's it. Versus, yeah, I can always extend the style object and, you know, pass a class name in there and just customize it when we need it. And that's it. So I think it's kind of different approaches and just, I, I'm not sure one is better than the other. I do like having the option to extend and, you know, customize, but it's fine as long as you decide and align with the designer on what we're going for. And I think that the, the downside of restricting that design is, is, you know, it limits the creative freedom <laughs> and vision of the designer because you're kind of limiting to what they're building once and then like they're, they could feel like they're limited to that design. So I do like giving them the freedom to, you know, build upon that component and maybe adding more states and more things that they haven't thought about initially. Yeah. And I, and I really think that also once you have, you know, kind of a preview of the, of the library, like in storybook and stuff like that, you could definitely have them play with it and, you know, interact with it. And you could even, you know, build it out in storybook first and just have them review it, have them fill it out. And once it's ready, it can go out into the app. But it could definitely serve as kind of a menu they can choose from of the components available. When I first started taking computer science classes in college, I thought programming was just a joke. In fact, I changed my major over to engineering and started doing computer engineering and chip design. Then I found Ruby and I fell in love. I love Ruby. It was my first real programming language where I dove deep and really learned how to make software that makes a difference for other people. Since then... And the way that we got started with devchat.tv, we started a show called Ruby Rogues. It's currently in the 400s of episodes. We've talked to hundreds of people in the Ruby community about the Ruby community, about the Ruby programming language, about Rails, and about what makes good programming. So if you're interested in Ruby Rogues, or you just want to hear a long series of experienced programmers talking about real problems, then go check out rubyrogues.com. I was going to ask if you used Storybook. That was something that my team and I were considering when we were not using a component library. We ended up going with Ant Design, which has really good documentation and examples for our UXers of all the different components that are available to them. But before that, we were thinking of something like that so that UX could go through, find all the things that we'd already built and hopefully reuse those in their designs to keep the consistency. Yeah, I very much like Storybook. I think it serves as a very good kind of preview of your component library, especially if you're building out your own components. As you said, InDesign, for example, has really good documentation, really good, like their own kind of 
storybook <laughs> and you know examples of all the states of the component and i think storybook just does that very well you know i think when you create all the states of the different of of the components like you have one component that like can input component then you can do a story of that disabled that pre-filled that with max length and the character count and all those states and it's very helpful for example for a new developer on your team to come over and see okay i need to build this page let's see which components already exist and if it behaves according to what the designer made oh cool there's then input i'll just import that and since storybook allows you to you know display use add-ons to display like the props and the types it creates a very easy kind of automatic documentation for the components so i love that and i also love using you know the knobs and the actions like when you when you click something you can note that there's a callback there and the the structure of the object that gets returned so i think storybook is really a good solution for that and i think if you have a component library it's a very good idea to have storybook or any other tool that creates that you know component preview yeah, I mean, on that point, um, we actually started using Storybook at my work, but then we just, because we're trying to migrate an application to a new code base from Angular to React, and then also building new components as well, and then new features, we then found that it was just, it became like a time issue where there was time to, okay, look at the old code base and analyze what needs to change. Okay, once that's done, you've got a design, you've got your, you've got your components, you build it, and then maybe after a month or so, or, or a few sprints, you, you need to then extend that component or maybe tweak it, like like, like you're saying, because it's, it's dynamic. But then at the same time, you've got work coming in as well. So we ended up saying, okay, just for now, we'll just use Figma because the designer has got all the stuff in Figma set up for all the different components. But from my experience, what tips do you have for actually being able to have a storybook setup that's easy to use and maintain as well? I think it really depends on your, you know, development process. I do think spending that time to, you know, adding that preview in Storybook is very beneficial, but I do understand that it does add time. As I said, it might feel like you're spending more time on, you know, fleshing out the preview and the component instead of actually developing. It's not something that, you know, I have the, the best answer for, like what you should exactly do. I think that it, it's kind of like adding tests you know, to the components, you feel like it might be, you know, it, it might slow you down or it might be, you know, a waste of time or whatever. But I think in the long run, it's very, very important when you're creating reusable components to have that aspect of, you know, having a clear API for the component, having a clear preview, having tests that, you know, kind of defend that structure that you built and, you know, make sure it's stable. Yeah, I, I totally understand. We just added also I just I just introduced Storybook myself to our component library and it's not something that you know you don't have to have it for developing it's definitely not something that technically is required but I do think that when you have time to add it I think it it gives a lot of benefits so I, we do have some components that don't have stories at all and I'm slowly adding it as I go so it's not like all or nothing. It's just something that when you have time, you can add those stories and you can add stories for the more stable components that you know you kind of reached a solid point there when you've you've mapped out all of the use cases and you know you haven't changed those in a while. You know that button is kind of I, I have that component ready. 
I can start introducing it to storybook, have a story for it, have tests and stuff like that. So that was another question that I had. Since I've not built a component library, how do you test something like that? Yeah. So I would recommend, first of all, I love Jest. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's a great testing tool. And I think when you get to testing those components, which is, you know, it could be a whole talk on itself on how to test components. But I think kind of the main functionality of the component is something you'd want to test. If it kind of formats, you know, data in some way, definitely I would test that. You could also test like the UI behavior, like you could use Enzyme to test that, you know, the user interaction stays as you expected, like when you click a button and a list item is added to the list and just make sure that the integrity of the UI is how you would expect it. And sometimes that's very important, like when you have payments or something like that, and you want to make sure that the PayPal bad button actually works, which actually happened at some point where a payment button did not work and it costs, never mind. <laughs> so it's important to test those stuff on the UI side as well. So I think a combination of Jest and Enzyme is, is very good for those scenarios. And you also have Jest snapshots, which is good. I mean, it could be a, a headache when you're constantly updating the components. So if you don't know, a snapshot is just, you just take a kind of a virtual snapshot of the component. It just snaps the actual HTML output of the component. And when you make changes, it compares it to the previous snapshot. And it asks you, okay, it doesn't match the snapshot. Do you want to update it? So if someone touches the component and the tests automatically fail because you change the snapshot, you can be very much aware, oh, I made a change there that you know I need to update that snapshot. And it kind of makes you, gives you a point in time of how the component should look like. And you know, when you make a change, you might not be aware that you're actually, you know, making a structural change in the component and changing, for example, some class name or something like that. And it may be, I don't know, dependent <laughs> on that structure. So snapshot, I, I think it's it's nice to have. I don't, you know, see it as a necessity, but it's a cool feature. It's a cool feature to add to reusable components for sure. Have you tried using um, Percy for testing visual components as well? No, I have not. So we, so basically Percy is um, a tool which you can integrate with like your um, GitHub repo. And so how we use it is each time we push a change, we have Percy run that page. So let's say in our case, we've got a, snap, a snapshot of the login page. We set password page, the dashboard. And basically what, what it does is when you add a new change to, to that code base, it will look at both the pages side by side and highlight the errors in the whole page that I've changed as well. So, oh, is that like it compares actual screenshots? Exactly, yeah. Oh, wow. Nice. Yeah, so, nice. so things like margins, paddings get actually picked out because I, I found that when I use snapshots, you get to a case where you might tweak a really small thing in the component, which really shouldn't make it, make it fail, but because it's not what it does, and then you end up abating them anyway. And after a while, you have a habit of just of, of clicking update on a snapshot, and it's really useful. So we've actually changed using Percy, and it's really, really good. 
Uh, that sounds very useful. Yeah. I could have used that. <laughs> I think our team could still use that, honestly. Yeah, no, yeah, it's, it sounds... it's, and the good thing as well is we have our designer look at the at the screenshot and, and tell us what needs to change. Because one issue we had was when we built a component, the designer might not see it until it's put it's it's, it's in production, right? Mm-hmm. So now mm-hmm. what we do is when we're developing, we actually are also in close to, talking to the designer and saying, okay, this is how, this is how it's so far. Any feedback on on the on the page so far, and then after that we go to the pull request stage, and Purse has got a snapshot of the of the page, so they can see that and say, okay, cool, I can see that in this area you've not done X, Y, and Z, and that means when we're in production or, or testing in, in staging, for example, there's less feedback because they've been involved in the process earlier on. So yeah, it's, it's really good for that. I love that because it really does involve the designer in the process exactly. and gives them a chance to review it before it's out there in production. Sometimes yeah. it's like a surprise for them. Oh, it's already there and it doesn't look like what I did. What the? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I think another... Very... Oh, sorry. Yeah. Oh, I was just wondering, is it very difficult to get started with Percy? Like how difficult was it to get it into your project? Very easy. Very, nice. very easy. Yeah. Because it's literally in the, in the code base... So we actually now use Percy and Cypress testing as well together. Mm-hmm. So if you use it on its own, you've got a file in your code base in which you basically have to outline the route you're, you're, you're testing. So whenever you run, whenever it runs, like in our case, it's Circle CI. When, mm-hmm. when you play the application, it basically runs Percy part of it and goes to each route and test it. But, but then now we've got it in Cypress as well. So I think there's a Cypress and Percy integration where you write your Cypress test and as part of the test, it also runs Percy as well. So you get end-to-end testing and Percy as well on top of that. So it's it's really simple and quite easy to get in, yeah. Sweet. Very good. Yeah, I think also adding Cypress, like it's not very specific to component libraries, but I think it's a very good tool for end-to-end testing, you know, and the combination with Percy sounds like very good. I'm going to adopt that. (laughs) (laughs) It, it's called the Cypress stack, I guess you can call it, can call it that. <laughs> yeah. And, and one thing I talked to you about um, was you, you had an article on Medium, which you titled Becoming a Developer, yes. which basically had 12 steps for how to stand out as a developer in your company. Would you mind just going through that article and what made you want to write that article? Yeah, no problem. So basically... I started writing it back when I was in Fiverr. It actually sat at my drafts for like <laughs> years, <laughs> but I kind of became more aware of that approach when I got to Fiverr because they very much encouraged their employees to not just be focused on the task ahead, but be very much, you know, in Israel, we call it uh, uh, big-headed, but in, in English, it means something else. But being, you know, very, how do I say it? You know, thinking outside the box, kind of, and not just looking at your day-to-day jobs and your day-to-day tasks that you're given, but just, you know, building uh, proactively the course of your career and, you know, just not being reactive to what features and projects you're being given and assigned to work on, but being very much kind of a leader within your organization, even if you're not a manager or something like that, you can always take on things that you find that you're passionate about and, you know, become a more prominent developer within your company. So I think kind of when you're a junior developer, you're very much reactive. You're very much 
just, oh, I got this Jira ticket. I'm going to do that the best I can. And that's it. Move on to the next. But when you're, when you, you, you become a bit more open-minded and more kind of more an ambitious view, then you need to start, you know, being more proactive, looking at things that your team struggles with on day-to-day, like in the development process and thinking, okay, how could I improve that? How could I automate things for us? How could I introduce new technologies and new, new libraries that can improve stuff? How could I create, you know, a UI for something that we do manually that's very hard, like managing A-B tests or rollouts for different users. So definitely, like, why not add a dashboard for that? I think doing all those things can promote you from becoming very much a developer to a developer that's someone that's very prominent and someone that is pushing for their progress okay, within the organization and, and in general. Like I think it, it really improves the perception of you within the organization and, and gives you more opportunities to be being presented to you because because the organization starts and your managers, they start identifying that you're kind of going above, uh, out of your comfort zone and not just being vo- very focused on what you do, but you're also focused on the, the company's goals and you're helping other developers and, you know, you're being very mindful of the whole roadmap and whole ecosystem and not just your little bubble. So I really think that those are very important points to, you know, becoming a more prominent developer within an organization. And I'd love to talk about a little more about how you actually structure reusable components, because I think that's a point that is very important. Like how, when you have a component that's reusable, how is it different from a non-reusable component? Like what what's actually different. So I really think you need to remember that you're building it for other developers as well in mind. So I think it needs to be abstracted as much as possible. So first of all, the the language and naming, it should be generic. Try not to use things like very specific to your use case. But if you have a list of items, then just do, just expect a prop called items and not just, you know, I don't know, uh, something that's very specific. So yeah, the the language is very, very much, uh, you know, an aspect of being generic. And I think having types that are not too specific and too complicated, very important. Also being flexible in those types, like you might expect a title to be a string, but it can also be a React node, right? It can be like something you might allow someone to put component there. So I think I think it's nice to allow that flexibility. And also I think it could be a useful thing to have kind of a style guide for the components and kind of a conceptual API consistency across the, the components. So if you have kind of callbacks and how you would name them and what to expect them to receive. I think it's it's also important. And I do recommend using TypeScript for those components. I do have a love-hate relationship with TypeScript. Mostly love. Sometimes I want to smash my computer to the wall, but mostly love. And But I do think like for usable components, it's very beneficial because you get all those, you know, those errors on compile time when you're using the component, if you're making changes and it makes the, you know, the interface is very clear. 
of what you expect to receive and what you're returning. And if you if you don't want to use types, at least use prop types just to make sure that you know uh, the person that's going to use that component actually knows the interface and the props to use. And when you're using that, you know you're using prop types and you're using a TypeScript, which is good. But I very much suggest using default props and setting default props for usable components. So it's very clear what the default state of the component is, and you can always change that. You can always switch the booleans and stuff like that, but you have a default state and it's very clear in that component. And very much important point is that those components should not depend on the store, right? So if you have store management, Mobex or Redux or Context, those components that are reusable, they should not be connected to the store in any way. You shouldn't have components that have inject or you know observers. It's dumb components. It's, it's not nice to call them dumb, but they're dumb. They're just display components that receive props and display the UI according to, the, to those props. So don't rely, you know, store data for that. Just expect to get everything from the props and handle, you know, the inner, inner state with hooks. If you have like something that's inner functionality, like a accordion menu, when you have toggle lists that open and close, you can manage that within the component with, you know, use state, but, you know, don't expect to be connected to the store in anyway. And I also recommend adding optional callbacks. So, you know, when you have actions on the component, allow for callbacks to be passed in. It's very useful sometimes for like when you open and close a menu, sometimes you want to know if it's open or closed for any reason. You you, You can also not add it at first and just iterate, as we said, but it's always a good thing to allow, you know, places to hook into that you might need. And I also think display-wise, reusable components should not have too much of a, you know, of a style, of a specific style to them. Like, like width-wise, I would say the component should just take the width of the container. It, it does, it does require some thinking of how it would be used, but I think since we want to allow the reusability across different scenarios, different layouts, I would not necessarily restrict the width of the component and I would allow it to take the the width of the container and just, you know, have that concept in mind where you're just building something to be used within another component. So also according to your approach, like we talked about, if you're rigid or you're flexible, with extending and customizing those components. If you are more open to customizing, then I would definitely allow props like styles and class names, you know, so you can hook into those uh, divs or or the component structure and actually customize it and pass custom styles. And I think if you're using also component that has, you know, a basic HTML component like button or input, definitely extend that its natural type, you know, button has all sorts of and, and inputs they have on change and on focus and stuff like that. Definitely hook into that type and allow using that interface because, you know, you would need that and people expect to be able to use that functionality. So I think those are the main points to keep in mind when you're building a component for reusability. So keep it generic, keep the language generic, make sure the types are very clear. The interface is very clear. Don't rely on store. Make sure you just rely on data passed from the props. And depending on your approach, allow customizability and send the default types of the native components. 
Cool. I think to also add on that as well, I, I use a module called class names. I don't know if you heard of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you allow you, the component to accept a style, a class name, you combine the component's class name and the, and the prop class name as well. I use class names as well. And that's when we because before that, I would do the whole kind of ternary approach where I would say, if this, then add this two together. And that got messy until I came across class. And it's, it's really good for that kind of thing as well. I totally agree. Class names is very useful for this case. I use it all the time. So basically, you could have the basic class name of the component, its its basic style, and you allow passing a prop from outside as a class name, and then you can kind of override what you need, but you still get the original style of the component. That's especially, I haven't pointed out that I think using JSS is very good in reusable components. I think it really helps it become kind of a component on itself. And using that with class names, I think it creates a very good customizable component because you do get the default state of the component and you can pass in the style object that you need. And yeah, I think it's a very good point using class names for sure. Cool. So I think we've covered quite a lot of ground today, actually. So are there any kind of last things you think we should know before we go on to picks? I think also like there's a, there are different approaches to how you would work on the component itself because when you create a reusable component you could either work on it detached from your actual app you could start working on it directly in Storybook, for example. So you have a very you know, isolated environment where you're just working on that component. Or you could work on it directly in the app. I kind of find with both approaches, I, I think in Fiverr, we very much did the development within Storybook just to keep it isolated, keep that usability in mind that it's not dependent on a certain page or a certain layout. It needs to work in various layouts. So I, I kind of like that approach because it kind of forces you to not rely on your apps, you know, CSS necessarily or certain layouts CSS kind of gives you a more abstracted kind of feeling. I think that's it. <laughs> you pretty much covered a lot. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, thank you. Uh, that's really good. That's really good stuff there. Have you thought about learning to do native iOS development? Are you using Swift at work? Or maybe you've considered writing applications for macOS. We have a podcast that covers all of that called iFreaks. We have a new panel and a lot of exciting things to talk about. So come check us out at iFreaksShow.com. So let's go on to picks and I'll start this time around. So the first pick is a website I came across today, actually. It's called diff.blog. And essentially, it's created to keep track of all the blogs you have in tech. And it's it's because the guy that did it, I think you're saying that um, it's because... On Medium, for example, the control of the of the blog is not actually yours. It's obviously on Medium's platform, and now they've removed the the domains as well. So all the blogs say Medium.com. So this website basically allows you to go on it, open up open up a pull request, I think, and, and add your blog to that website, and it keeps track of all the blogs in the industry. So like, there's one from PayPal, from Stripe, from like like the more kind of typical tech blogs. So that's really good. And then secondly, my other pick today is all about using JS with frameworks. And it's a repo called Vanilla Projects. And essentially what it is, is it's 20 projects written with no framework in mind. So just pure JS. And it's really good for being able to kind of try your skills without using React or Angular or Vue. So yeah, that's my picks for today. Paige, what about you? So my pick for today kind of goes with my pick from last time. My husband is in the process of vetting grills, all kinds of grills, smoker grills and pellet grills and you know, he just wants a new grill. 
So one of the things that he has found and just ordered and is really excited to try out is a grill brush on Kickstarter called the World's Best Grill Brush. And what makes it different is that it's actually a sponge that you wet down and then rub against your grill grates instead of the wire bristle brushes, which can break off or using tin foil or something else to clean the grates. It's, you know, you can wet it down, you can clean your grates, you can put the sponge in the dishwasher afterwards to wash it out again. And, you know, it's supposed to be, you know, the best grill brush that's ever been. We'll see. It looks like it is though, because a lot of people really liked it. So I will be able to give you a report soon, but I'm going to go with it and say that the other people who have already commented how much they love it are a good starting point. So that's going to be my pick for today. Is it pricey? I don't think it is. I, I, let me see. It looks like it's $25 for the early birds on Kickstarter. And then it was 35 after that. So yeah, it's not, it doesn't look like it's too pricey to start with. <laughs> Oh, awesome. All right. And what about you, Dana? Any picks for today? Do the picks need to be non-technical or can anything, it be... Anything, yeah. It can be technical, non-technical. So I think uh, a very cool little one-page website that I found that actually I think Dana Bramov kind of retweeted, it's one-line layouts. And it's actually just CSS techniques that actually help you create very 